0: My guest this week is Chris Duvos, a managing partner at Venture Investment Associates, which allocates $1.6 billion on behalf of investors. Chris is the first professional allocator I've spoken with who focuses specifically on venture capital funds. So I had a ton of questions for him on how to build a portfolio in an asset class known for uncertain, but often enormous outcomes. We discussed the major recent changes in the asset class and where things might be going. I saw Chris out because while this is an investment style that is full of creativity and hope, I've always felt it could use a healthy dose of skepticism and a value investor's mindset. He delivers in spades as we try to separate the real from the ideal. We didn't record it, but Chris's tour of Palo Alto was one of the most interesting and entertaining hours I've spent. He is a student of markets and of history, and I look forward to learning more from him in the future. Please enjoy our conversation on venture capital investing. So, Chris, I'm going to start with a question that is antithetical to most venture investing by forcing you to play a little game, which is if you had to build a quant model where all you got to select venture firms was four factors that have to be objectively measurable. Objectively measurable. So, for example, assets under management could be one factor that you could use in in your way of screening or track record or something like this. What four factors knowing fully that this is a silly place to start? do you think are most positively related to future success for venture firms?
1: Well, I didn't go to law school, but all my friends who went to law school said, professors always say, don't fight the hypo, but I'm gonna fight the hypothesis here a little bit because I almost think that if you found four factors, I'm not sure they would necessarily correlate with success, although they might, but they would certainly correlate with volatility. And I think you can positively skew volatility. And so one thing I would actually say, and this is my bias, and there are a lot of people on the opposite side of this trade, my bias is portfolio concentration is number one. On the margin, I believe that people who are more concentrated will have more success because each win has much more impact. Now, the reality of it is then you have to step back and say, like, are they choosing well enough? This isn't monkeys throwing darts at a dartboard because in that scenario, actually, portfolio diversification would 50 60 70 companies of fund would probably give you a better chance of hitting the winner but if you can apply you know kind of thoughtfulness to the problem and have a portfolio of 12 to 20 you could really make a structural alpha i believe so that's one another and this is actually an interesting question how can you quantify this and I'll say maybe it's a qualifier thing, not a quantifier. But one thing that I focus a lot on, and I know you talk a lot about, is repeatability. And I believe that process drives repeatability. People who have thoughtful processes around building hypotheses and testing those hypotheses and executing against those hypotheses, that's a really powerful, and I'll say the poster child for that is Union Square. They spend a lot of time talking about process driving repeatability, and I think that, you know, you look at the first round guys and they've built a big infrastructure, the true guys, a bunch of folks who've built process for driving deal flow and driving decision making, building that investment. And I think that's another one. A third factor, I think quite frankly, if done well, just being early, this is completely exposing my bias. Early stage investors, I think are kind of structurally advantaged versus late stage investors just because they have a better cost basis. And so, all right, so we've got three, we've got uh, concentration. <laughs> What's the concentration. And then it's funny because I think a lot of people in my seat would say track record, but I actually think track record is a lagging indicator, not a leading indicator. And there's this, I call it the financial law of levitation. Stepping back a moment in venture, the horizon is so long. It takes Eight to 11 years for companies to get public from first investment on average. It takes, I think, six years on average to get to an M&A exit. And so the evaluation horizon, you've got telltales along the way, but the evaluation horizon is actually – sometimes a multiple of the fundraising horizon, you'll raise four funds conceivably before fund one starts really showing results. And that's longer than most people's attention spans. And in fact, it's longer than a lot of people's career tenures. So you've got all these principal agent problems, which we'll talk a ton about in due course. But one of the things that's really challenging is then here we go to the financial law of levitation people have success or at least perceived success with their early funds and then basically have money thrown at them. So somebody once told me it's, it's harder than you ever dreamed it would be to raise a fund one, but far easier than you ever thought it might be to raise fund two and so on and so forth. And so by the time you really know if a fund is good it's usually a lot larger. And I think, I do think that size is a contraindicator to success. I think size disciplined funds that can continue to kind of repeat on this process. Like a benchmark is an example. Benchmark is the poster yeah. child. They've done a great job. First round has done a great job of staying in their fund range. And there are plenty of arguments against that. But I think those two are, the, are really the poster children for being able to drive kind of repeatability at size. And look, at the end of the day, back to this principal agent problem, and then I'll stop (laughs) jibber-jabbering, because you've got me on my soapbox, of which I have many. That's the whole idea. Yeah, right? The principal agent problem is, I don't understand why people don't value cap gains, although they may be uncertain, over more certain W-2. I mean, I guess that makes sense. I I asked it as a question, but intuitively it makes sense. But cap gains is so much more powerful. But yet I think people kind of get intoxicated by the ability to spin funds, raise money, become mini asset managers. So I think size discipline would be kind of the the fourth. If you could, so there we go. Size discipline, portfolio concentration. Repeatability. Repeatability and whatever that last one was. Whatever (laughs) that last one was, it's all good. But we've basically described benchmark union square yep, yep, first round yep. a bunch of these the bunch of these kind of ideal firms
0: so maybe we could step back a couple steps to draw a map of the entire venture landscape from your perspective so this would be rates of change is what always interests me so i've, I've heard you talk about the kind of rise of all of these micro cap venture firms and in one of your letters there was a, a great little phrase where it was like snow blinded by opportunity there's just such a glut of Of capital and interest in this world. And we also joked when we were on the phone last time that that we might call this episode something like a value investor lost in the valley, and that you have this in your DNA contrarian type mindset. So with the contrarian hat on, looking at the landscape today, maybe describe what it looks like relative to history, and then we'll get into kind of where we might be going.
1: Sure. And you think about it, venture was almost this cottage industry up until the mid-late 90s, you know, kind of sub- a lot of cases, five billion a year, then you know maybe ten billion a year, and then David Swenson wrote first the h b s case then which eventually turned into the book, and Swenson talks about being long equities, being illiquid, all these things that when you put them in a jar and shake them up and spill it out, it says venture capital and Yale had a great run with venture capital and continues to do really well. I teach the Yale case every now and again at, at business schools, and you know I ask people like, what's the lesson of the case?" and people say, "Oh, you know be illiquid, be long, you know whatever. I say I said no, the the lesson of the case is actually don't try this at home. Right? Because so many people then piled into venture capital in the late nineties. We saw two thousand was a hundred billion dollar fundraising year and returns really suffered. And then that created this six, seven, eight year period where venture was somewhat depressed. And then what happened is by 2008, we started seeing this fundamental change in entrepreneurial finance that started becoming obvious. It really started happening in kind of 03, 04, but it's what collectively we call today lean startup. So basically, you know, you can, instead of buying servers, you can now rent them. Instead of hiring all these developers, you can find open source stuff and integrate it. All these things happen first in the consumer web, but then migrated into other areas, into enterprise. And then I've often, Chris Anderson from 3D Robotics and and Wired, always said the peace dividend of the cell phone wars was creating this cheap library of things that used to be unobtainium. So we've seen lean startup in the hardware space, etc. And so there's been this explosion in entrepreneurship and it used to cost Josh Koppelman at First Round always says his first startup took $7 million to get to First Revenue his second startup took 700 k <laughs> to get to First Revenue and then his third startup took 70 k before he was at First Revenue and today the cost of getting to First Revenue can be the opportunity cost of unemployment and you can scale in response to growth and rather than in advance of it and all these things led to a kind of a, a flowering of, of entrepreneurship meanwhile the venture industry was still kind of chugging way where the archetypal fund was like a 400 million dollar fund and people were used to doing these large rounds but companies suddenly didn't need that kind of money so this created what people started talking about in 0809 2010 sophisticated people started talking about the capital gap because if you're a 400 million dollar fund you can't write a 500k check so that led to the rise of these funds. First Round, IA out of New York, True, Floodgate, some of the pioneers, SoftBank, Felisa, some of the pioneers in that space. And those guys right away got in a bunch of great companies. So every one of those companies I just named has a signature deal or two. And what's the Buffett line? The innovators are followed by the imitators who are followed by the idiots, <laughs> right? And I sometimes feel like we're you know, in the idiot idiots, right? Because now there are 550 micro VC firms. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Now you've got crazy competitive intensity for every single, in every single space. And what that does is it's really driving up price. And the return on any asset is a function of the price you pay to get in plus the capital it consumes. It's like almost simple math. So I spent a lot of time talking to to new people coming into the space. I'm like, look, maybe this makes me sound like a fuddy dud, but... I believe in Buffett's equation. And I don't know if Buffett actually said this. I just throw that out. I call it Buffett's equation to make it sound smart. But opportunity equals value minus perception. It's simple. Basic, it's yeah. basic. Hard to do. Easy Hard to, to say, do, yeah. easy to say, right? Exactly. But what's interesting is in this zip code or the, you know, these three area codes, four one five, six, five, oh, four, oh, eight, basically what people sometimes think is if you can drive perception, that can drive value. So there's almost this mental recursiveness. Some people call it the tech crunch effect. When a company gets hot, all of a sudden it's more valuable, and that's actually interesting to me. And you know there may be like some truth to that. You know, there's there might be some reality to the recursion because if a company can get quote unquote hot, it can rise above yeah. its competitors. But the reality is that there is. Some sense of fundamental value, ultimately, you know, revenue and, and it always matters. in it, the end. It always matters in but, the end. And in the end, this is what the challenge I think that we run up against as a business. In the end, there has to be a last buyer. There has to be a last buyer for your shares or a next buyer for your shares. And that's either an acquirer or the public markets both of which tend to be, as sets, pretty smart folks and really actually care about value with a capital V, not how many mentions you have on TechCrunch. And so (laughs) so it's been really interesting to me because we've seen a bunch of these IPOs go out where the opening, or I guess the range, and the, the ultimate, like, IPO price is below the last round oh, right, sure. private market right, price. so it's a public down round. <laughs> it's a public down round. And that's actually really interesting because that's where now we see perception has gotten so big, value is what it's perceived to be, so opportunity has shrunk. So it's almost this, it's like a seesaw around the pivot of value. And I think a lot of people in this zip code think about sexiness as as a proxy for opportunity, but really they've got to create. It's the exact opposite probably. Exactly, now I don't mean to be a total cynic because there's amazing value that's being created. We're reshaping the way people live and work, but there has to be a sense for what the value creation actually is in a way that's articulable to
0: the ultimate buyer. Do you think that maybe part of the problem might be there's so much funding, the 550 microcap VC firms, so much experimentation happening, the lean startup, you can do any idea on the cheap that this all ends up as consumer surplus. It's fantastic for society uh, because we get to use the products and services, but the investors that win are are maybe just lucky and the prospective returns that venture has delivered for so long just just won't happen, that it'll be captured by consumers.
1: So I'm not going to answer that question first, (laughs) but I'm going to answer Eventually. One thing that actually keeps me optimistic, because I don't want to sound like a radical pessimist, (laughs) but one thing that keeps me optimistic is what Nicholas Nassim Taleb said about the U.S. economy. He said there was this thing in 2008 when everything was going haywire. A magazine, I think, wrote an article or asked a bunch of leading thinkers, what are they optimistic about? And he wrote this great piece That said, what I'm most optimistic about is the American economy. And it was almost like a contrarian thing to say because things were looking kind of grim in 08, less so here, but elsewhere for sure. And what he said is he said, America's economy is the most open to optionality of any economy in the world. He said, and I, I really believe that the essence of that is distilled here. And a 1,000 flowers are blooming, and the vast majority of those will die off. But the few that really survive will flourish and thrive and, and really be transformative and continue to be transformative and I think be great investments for those who are well-positioned with respect to the, some of the things I talked about around right-sized funds, concentration, conviction, process, all that stuff. There will be money to be made. But I think, as we've always seen in venture— If you were to index venture, you would have wasted your time. This goes back to the Yale case, which is don't try this at home. It's amazing to me living out here. I I was attracted to California because it's a sunny and magical land. (laughs) You know, Walt Whitman has this great poem called Song of the Redwood Tree, and he talks about populous cities and the latest inventions. This is in 1850. He's talking about this. He goes, in California, I see the genius of the modern. He talks about the child of the real and the ideal. And that's what's here. And being on the ground here, it's amazing to see the kind of richness and the texture and the flow. And yet one of the challenges is we see people kind of fly in here from Dubuque and Dubai and spend three days each quarter or a week every six months and then think they've got it all figured out. But you know, as an ecosystem, there's so much more richness and texture. And it's a lot of that outside money that's generally less, I won't say less sophisticated because it's very sophisticated money, but less attuned to the true opacity of the place that is funding a lot of these marginal investors. And then as a result, you've got chaos capital, especially in the early stage. I think we've got had a barbelling of the venture industry. We've got 550 micro funds who really have created this kind of cauldron of both innovation, but funding that, you know where things are, I'm shocked, and sometimes evaluations that things get as seed investments. And then on the high end you got these like you know mega funds now. And so this this barbelling has really created some funky dynamics, but the large funds will continue to, you know, raise money because Some of these large pools of capital that want innovation exposure have no place else to go. They can't invest in some of the the early stuff. So it's an interesting time because the barbelling has gotten so much more profound. And
0: I guess that's the long answer to the, you know, kind of historic art question. It's fascinating. And I'll pull on that real versus ideal. It's a nice little dichotomy and it rhymes as a means to talk about a little more optimistic question, which is, okay, if we buy that, this sort of creative, nascent style of investing is going to be around for a long time and that the U.S. has a structural advantage in terms of optionality and all these things, where to kind of look next? So part of the contrarian idea isn't so much just doing the opposite of what other people do. It's more just doing stuff from first principles that's just new and interesting. So maybe microfond or ho- however you want to approach the question, how do you, as an allocator to, as an LP in venture funds, think about finding things that's a little bit different, maybe where the prices aren't as crazy high as they are in the you know five square blocks around where we're sitting. It's an interesting question
1: because no matter where you shine your flashlight right now, there are... I was gonna say you know, fifty cockroaches scurrying, but I I, I don't want to make it sound like I'm super negative because there's there's a lot going on. But that said, there there are so many people seemingly in every corner, and it's amazing. One one way in which this kind of articulates itself in the market is how quickly things get get overheated. So, crypto is a new new thing now. We've got crypto funds, we've got space, you know, there's space funds. It's amazing how dynamic the market is and it's interesting because then you get this build of anticipation then you like that crashes into whatever they call the trough of disappointment and you know maybe that's an interesting place to invest but me personally a couple of things actually one is i like investing kind of post hype because i feel like there are a lot of technologies out there that are overhyped in the short term and underhyped in the long term to borrow john Doerr's phrase and there's some things that are either that are like that i think are interesting but where I'm spending a lot of my energy lately is on college campuses. And I have found that historically people have looked to colleges and research institutions for kind of IP to pull out. And that's a kind of a tricky, thorny road because you've got thick institutional universes and licensing offices and this and that. And, and you know, there's some success stories, but also a lot of broken plows. However, I've got a thesis that what we're seeing now is real authentic entrepreneurship among college students. And in very sophisticated ways, this isn't just like two guys in a room with an app. But, you know, I've spent a lot of time at Berkeley. We've just invested in this thing called the House Fund. That sits on top of some of the entrepreneurship and is trying to create almost like a clearinghouse. They've got a great space on campus, and they they have, you know. I talk to these students, some of these PhD students who have novel pieces of software that are kind of disrupting, kind of a interesting. You know, I probably shouldn't get too far into it, lest the the incumbents hear hear footsteps. But <laughs> but like amazing, like computational physics or kind of computational biology or some of these things, they are really student-driven. They, they rely on some stuff that's going on in these on these campuses, but really more so rely on the energy, the entrepreneurial energy and the invention energy that turns into innovation energy. So we're looking at something at MIT that's similar. We've got, boy, I'd I love to put somebody in business to sit on top of Carnegie Mellon or some of these other,
0: other places. That's really interesting to me. So closer to the sources. What about geography? I had a, a really interesting conversation with i <laughs> An angel investor turned small venture capitalist in Jerusalem, and what I loved about the conversation was his investing thesis was basically there's a lot of smart, talented technologists in Jerusalem, and literally zero people investing in them. All the money's in Tel Aviv, and even though it's a short drive, culturally it was just an odd discrepancy. And so he he got preferential pricing and all these other kind of interesting deal flow access as just being the only person there. And so I've been thinking a lot about geography as it pertains to venture, and I'd I'd love to get your take on that. Sitting sitting where Reset.
1: You know, it's so interesting to me because I've often thought about how spiky the world is. This is Richard Florida's analogy. Like, the world isn't getting flatter, it's getting spikier. So, there are these centers of innovation. But one of the, th- the mega trends that's going on in venture is. What used to be an opaque, and this is you know driving a lot of the fun formation activity, and especially in other geographies, we used to be like an opaque field, like nobody really knew how to do venture, right? It was this dark art practiced by a few people in Boston and a handful of folks in San Francisco Peninsula, and now we've got blog posts for days. Brad Feld has done an incredible service to the. It's it's amazing how widely disseminated the knowledge is, yet venture keeps concentrating in a few key ecosystems. New York, Boston, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Seattle. And Steve Case, obviously, is trying to do some really interesting stuff on the rise of the rest front. And I think that's really, really important stuff for the country. But what I've seen is that the talent continues to congeal in these you know, magnetic spots. And to your point, one thing that's interesting, and, and I don't know as well the geography of, of Israel and Tel Aviv versus Jerusalem, but I look at here in the in the Bay Area, and I think Berkeley is structurally underfunded. Cal is an incredible innovation engine, and if you throw on like Lawrence Berkeley Lab, right just right up the road, which has a lot of you know, and there's 850 million dollars in Department of Energy funding there. Add on another billion one, I think in, in you know kind of sciences funding at Cal, and yet all the venture capitalists spend their time at Stanford. And there's something to be said for culture, but boy, I think you know at Berkeley you go over and the folks are so much more hungry and, and, and dynamic. And boy, if I could make a pairs trade, I would go long Berkeley and short Stanford. And that's not a lack of excitement about Stanford. I think it's a fantastic and important place, but I think the fecundity, I think that's a $10 yeah, that's word right. for yep. my $5 brain <laughs> of ideas at, at Berkeley is incredible and completely underbanked. And why it's a 30 minute drive with no traffic from Sand Hill road, actually probably 45 minutes now. The reality is there's a lot of traffic, but so what, what a great place. So this is a really important question. And I think I, I forget what the question was, even though it's really just, just geography, <laughs> just
0: geography, whether that's within a city, like you're mentioning Berkeley versus Stanford or internationally, or, you know, the, that seems to be one way of finding differentiation as an allocator to venture funds.
1: And one of the challenges is I think there was this thought for a while. Everybody wanted to create Silicon Blank. Everybody wanted to like recreate Silicon. The reality is Silicon Valley is unique in the history of the world as a place that's magnetic because there are certain things that are in play here. That said, there are other places that will create their own dynamism and their own template. I don't want anybody else to be the next Silicon Valley. I want somebody to be the new bio coast or whatever, you know, whatever it'll end up being. But this ecosystem question is a really important one. And I actually often think of it in the following way. You know, I live in Palo Alto and I don't think most people Within a several block radius of me, I don't think anybody gets W two income. They're all equity or consulting, kind of ten ninety nine based. And you know, the founder of this company lives whatever blocks away from me. The founder of that company, and they're magnetized here, and they create this great mentorship loop. And that's one thing I've talked to. You know, I talked to somebody in London once. I said, "Well, what happens when a company goes public in London? What happens to the founders?" goes, oh well, they move to the south of France but the the magnetism of the bay area money is an important you know i always talk about the four m's you know money is a really important I'm thing about
0: this isn't the four p's i'm so sick of hearing oh yeah i am over it
1: right totally over it but you know money is crazy important but it's tom friedman talks about the electronic herd money goes here money goes there it's it's, it's just a blink of, of an eye away from appearing but then, momentum you have to have an ecosystem that has traction, and we see that in you know kind of new york l a and that's very attractive and magnetizes capital and people um, but then, the two things that I think the Bay Area has in spades relative to other ecosystems are mentorship, this persistence of people who know how it's done, and then the last one this isn't quite an M, but I cheat a little bit it's entrepreneurial management, taking a company from ten million dollars to a hundred million in revenue is an amazing challenge john lilly and and reed hoffman talk about blitz scaling blitz scaling is really hard i see companies portfolio companies who are in the midst of this and it's such a different skill set from the than the zero to ten exactly right zero to ten is amazingly hard and there are things that go into that that are unique to that skill set but then building that business in a way you know with alacrity it's like riding a tiger whose fur is on fire running through an oil field. And those are the, I will tell you, one thing that worries me about the Bay Area prospectively is a lot of the people who used to be those great entrepreneurial managers, like CFOs, VP sales, head of product, et cetera, they would continue to recycle into new companies. A lot of those folks are becoming venture capitalists now. Oh, no. And I'm just like, oh, my gosh. Or in some cases, the scale of the outcomes is so large that some of those folks can call in rich. And so this is the thing that worries me most. And, you know, look, we invest nationwide, and, and you know, we just did a, a fund in Toronto and I have not invested as much in in China historically we've done a, dribs and drabs, but you know so just think of North America. But as I think about where to vector my capital, I'm looking at those four ms and understanding the kind of the intellectual capital. in a a place is critical.
0: This is a unique opportunity for me because you're the first super allocator to venture funds that I've talked to. So your perspective is quite a bit different than the entrepreneurial layer and even the venture GP layer that I'm used to asking these similar questions to. And my guess is that your take is slightly different. So I'm hoping to go through a couple of the hot button issues in this world, both investing trends or ideas, memes, if you will, but also specifics like hard sciences or something like this. And sort of get your perspective from your seat as to whether or not it matters or or what your take is. So the first of these is the rise of cryptocurrency as a, forget most of what people talk about with cryptocurrency, but as a threat to traditional venture capital.
1: It's interesting because one of the trends that was talked a lot about with respect to crowdfunding was that we'd start seeing the separation of capital and influence. And you've got these guys out there. Because if you think about it, it was this unbundling. Because venture capitalists used to have capital and... Controlled pipe and everything, right? And and but they they also very much could plug companies into somebody at Cisco who could buy their product or some you know find a hire the perfect VP of engineering hire, etc. That was kind of part of the promise of the kind of the catalytic equity of venture capital. This is a, a catalytic value add asset class. And by the way, I think Swenson sold us all that bill what I goods, think yeah. is <laughs> a bill of goods because I think it's I do think it's somewhat of a myth. There are firms that do it. Really well, but a lot that, you know, the vast, vast majority are just passive capital. And I think with crowdfunding, we started to see the unbundling. And you look at people, there are guys like Peter Curry, CFO of Netscape and is just a valley guy. And he's been on the board of Twitter. You know, and I don't think he invests out of a fund. I think he's just a guy. And other people are investing and he's like the brain. And I think crypto is that trend perhaps taken to a you know the next level because we see folks going you know can go out and they can raise, you know, with coins considerable capital, right? It's it's amazing. So it's almost like crowd you've created a a more effective vehicle for crowdfunding in a sense but you still need help right There's so much goes into so much has to go right in building a company that you want more people kind of in your squad than you ever dreamed possible and so i think it's going to still be important to interface with people who have expertise whether we call those people venture capitalists or whether we call them people like peter curry these high impact outside brains will take on different it'll vary what you know what we call these people but ultimately venture capital firms will have to recast themselves as service providers. They provide a suite of services to entrepreneurs and, and keep talking about first round and you know and True and some others who have done a great job of packaging an offering in a sense for entrepreneurs. There's a suite of services that's that's available. And you know, this this kind of reorientation from venture capital fund as capital source to venture capital fund as service provider who actually just provides I think that's the trend. I mean, Andreessen Horowitz has kind of cast itself as, you know, they describe themselves as a, as a talent agency. There's so much, I think, that's innovating in that regard that'll stave off some of the crypto stuff.
0: But crypto is going to change the nature of VC as well. I'm going to come back to the Andreessen Horowitz idea in just a second. But first, just a point, like back to our earlier conversation, there's nothing that would terrify me more than being the venture investing that's happening at places that raise money through an ICO and they've got so much cash that they don't know what to do with. And it's just going to fund all these experiments. And I I just can't, like, I couldn't draw up something that seems to have worse (laughs) prospective investment results.
1: Well, it's amazing to me because one of the things that I look for in entrepreneurs and encourage my VCs to look for is accountability. And I think the whole ICO thing kind of changes some of the accountability dynamics. And that's really unsettling to me. And I'm gonna keep watching this closely. We had this wave of last half of 2017, and then obviously in 2018 we've had Telegram raise however many hundreds hundreds, hundreds of millions of dollars. I mean, it's amazing. I hope it slows down, and I think the market will kind of find its equilibrium. But over that time, you know, I think the pressure will be on venture capital firms to step up their game as, a, as service providers.
0: I want to come back to the service provider idea and spend a little time here, not just as it pertains to venture, but all asset managers. This is start, something that started to really pop up as a, Andreessen Horowitz as the CAA of the venture world right. is like a popular meme. But I, I wonder how much this is actually true versus something that sounds nice. Seems to me like it has to be hyper specific if it's actually real. Like so there's a firm in New York that does software for equities where they literally program your like your MVP or. You know examples like that that are really, really specific. Not like we're going to help you with everything and be a service provider, which just sounds nice, but probably doesn't mean anything. So I'm curious how much real versus ideal back to that, that idea right. again. So how much reality there is to this kind of service provider model? Because as someone that runs an asset management business, I'm interested in this idea.
1: Yeah. It's a really interesting question because you have to as between being a service provider and providing a service, there's nuances there. And I look at First Round, for instance, and and they're the firm I know best, especially in this regard. They've invested a ton of money in building a suite of services that are available to entrepreneurs. Yet I look at their signature investment, in some ways as Uber. And I've talked to Rob Hayes about it, and he was just in the right place at the right time. I think he was buddy-buddy with Garrett Camp and, and what have you. And, <laughs> you know, I don't think Travis ever asked a question of FRC's, you know, venture concierge. I, I, you know, I, I can't, you know, get into any specifics because I, I just don't know. But Travis was, a, you know, kind of a particular guy. I don't think Travis would call up first round and say, hey, what do you think I should do here? I'd like some help with this. That's just not his footprint. And so there is this question of, you know, kind of real versus ideal, I've seen the value of the first round kind of suite of of services firsthand. And I think there is a nice recursiveness to drive deal flow in that case. And I do think that entrepreneurs get a lot of value out of those services. Now, I've seen some of these service offerings that some venture firms are are suggesting that they offer and they're in some cases ludicrous. I you know, I don't want to get into specifics because I don't wanna embarrass anybody, but I think we're continually refining this model and kind of to your point. It's actually interesting. Actually double clicking on this, we had a big debate at Princeton. What are we gonna call our hedge fund portfolio? This I was at Princeton's endowment back in the early O's. What are we gonna call our hedge fund portfolio? A lot of these funds don't hedge. Ultimately, we settled on idiosyncratic return, which I thought was actually pretty That's clever, true, yeah. which I thought was great. I would actually hope that that would propagate throughout the universe. But there were a bunch of others. We, we had this like brainstorming session. We were like looking up in some of the literature, and some people were calling hedge funds skill based investors. Are you kidding me? Are bond fund inv- managers not skilled? It's the most ludicrous thing I've ever heard, but it was out in the literature. <laughs> And I think as we look forward in investing, because you know, I mean, you've talked about this a ton, passive investing is, it's so cheap to buy beta. And I think, you know, how does active management continue to look and evolve? And one of my views is across markets, public, private, et cetera. I think that active management will look more like catalytic management. How can those active managers bring some resources to bear?
0: Actually do something.
1: (laughs) Actually do something or offer some information or insight. So this starts to feel more like a deep, I think public markets start looking more like a deep value play where you have maybe some catalytic investment going on. There'll be many, many other strategies that a lot of people, including you, are far smarter to figure out than I am. But as I see the world, it'll be more kind of catalytic in
0: nature. What do you think about, the focused mindset versus the generalist mindset for venture investors. So I was going to ask originally about, you know, what you think about topics like machine learning and AI or CRISPR technology or some of these really kind of buzzy, hyped up areas of investing. But maybe a more interesting way to think about it, since you're an allocator to venture funds, is whether it's in your experience better for someone to be say like laser focused on finding the best AI companies or someone that just sort of sits and views the world broadly and pounces on opportunity when they see it?
1: This is a question I wrestle with a lot and I'm an investor in a group called Data Collective and I actually co-office with those guys and they're super smart guys and it was interesting to me that when they raised their first fund that I committed to, I was I think the first institutional investor in that fund in 2011, they were talking about big data Today, the vast majority of what they do is AI, which is kind of, you know, a cousin of big data. But the footprint that they built in those early years really has kind of put them in the catbird seat as so many people are now flocking into big data. Now, it's kind of a little self-serving and uninteresting story, but the reason I bring it up is because it kind of challenges my own view of something and you know so much of what we learn about venture is anecdotal and kind of passed down from the greats and you know I remember Mr. McCants putting his arm around me and saying at a you know Greylock meeting in 2001 Duvos, when when ventures working well time is cheap and capital is expensive and when that relationship is reversed watch out right you know and he, he kind of these things stick with you and and one of the things i read A long time ago, we're talking like 2002, which is almost in the primordial ooze days of venture, because it was written in kind of 97, 98, was written by this guy, Bill Davidow, who started more Davidow Ventures and was one of the kind of early titans of VC. And he did some analysis of venture up until 2000, I think. And he found that as spaces emerged, the first movers, the specialist funds, would capture Eventually, over the fullness of that idea playing out, those people captured all the early returns, but only 20% of the total returns, and 80% of the returns accrued to generalist firms who were nimble and could get up to speed. And his hypothesis was that those generalist firms would bring business-building resources, not just insight and domain knowledge, but business-building resources. Now, what has changed from that point to the story I tell about Data Collective? I think that venture, as the entire economy is, I think this is true, is getting more and more esoteric. I think understanding something about AI and the nuances and intricacies is much different than understanding computer hardware, which was itself difficult, challenging, but you had to you just had to find the right, you had to find Steve and Woz in a garage. I think the barrier to entry is much higher. In the stuff that's durable, I think anybody can fund some clown with an app. And I don't mean to be dismissive of that, but it's funny because, and now a little bit of a soapbox. The New York Times for a while was on this riff that there's no real innovation going on in Silicon Valley. And Farhad Manji was saying things like, how many dating apps can we have? And I'm like, wow, I wish for 10 minutes, I think I tweeted this at him once. I'm like, for 10 minutes, like, come hang out in my portfolio, and you will see really smart domain-focused people doing amazingly deep, world-changing stuff, whether it's synthetic bio or AI or robotics as human augmentation. There's such amazing stuff that's going to change our world so radically. And I think that is what makes this kind of specialist theme much more important than I historically have given
0: it credit for. Fascinating stuff. What of the hot button areas are most interesting to you? And the more interesting question is why? So from an investing standpoint, I mean, obviously, the technology behind all this stuff, again, is fascinating. We could talk all day about how AI and robotics are going to affect our lives, which is great. But my interest is always more, okay, is there a mispriced opportunity here? So how do you think about the overlap of interesting and opportunity?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question because there's so many things that are interesting but you need to believe so many things for those things to happen. In fact, Josh Kaufman wrote right. right. right? Josh Kaufman wrote this great blog post called Domino Rally Business Models, and he talked <laughs> about this. There's this game, where in the 70s, where like you'd set up all these dominoes and blah blah, and like, and then you'd hit them, and if they went all around, you know, you'd get the the win. But everything had to work just right, and in so many of these startups. You have to believe not only that they'll be able to execute, but then this other set of things will happen, and then another set of things will happen. And the probability, you know, what some people don't realize is the joint probability of all these things happening is actually pretty small. And so that's something that stresses me out. But what I would say is really exciting to me in terms of inspirational is, and this is not without controversy, I think robotics as human replacement And, you know, everybody's like worried about, you know, the robot future and, and, uh, you know, everybody losing their jobs. But there are a lot of, especially as the economy continues to evolve and mature, there are a lot of jobs that people just don't want to do either they're dirty, they're dangerous, they're disgusting, what have you. It's amazing we actually have an investment in a company that does it's a robotic drywalling company. And it's actually you you'd be amazed like once you learn about demographics of drywallers. It's amazing. They're like on average 7 years older than the average tradesperson. They're they're really an it's and it's hard work and you're in dust and there's like all these new OSHA regulations around silica dust. And so to have now a robotic Arm basically that finishes and sands and can even paint at extremely high precision is amazing. And nobody's really getting thrown out of work. It's just augmenting. In fact, you need people to supervise. This has been since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. You know, technology has actually created more jobs. But in certain places, it's getting hard to find people to do these jobs. So Farm work is hard, tedious, laborious. So we have a portfolio company that's a, an automated picker. And we're all the stuff around precision farming and that it can integrate with robotics. So this kind of human augmentation, then augmenting humans at work. And then another robotics thing that I get excited about is augmenting ourselves. So we have another portfolio company that's doing some interesting stuff around soft exoskeletons that can now help you run faster, have better metabolic benefit, you know, jump higher, ski, for the whole day without getting tired. So this human augmentation, I think, is real. Now, I'll tell you what stresses me out is the old phrase, the future's already here, it's just not evenly distributed. There's certain people that are gonna be affected by this more than others. There's certain people that are gonna have more opportunity than others to be augmented humans. And that's a really interesting and challenging societal question. That's probably above my pay grade, but getting us there, I think there'll be a lot of net benefit to society.
0: Back to this, this concept of being a value venture investor, which I just, I love, I love that idea because there's, there's not much against, especially early stage, there's not much against which to compare the price. The fundamentals, if you will, are mostly qualitative and, and hard to judge across a set of firms. In that analogy, that value investing idea, what other ideas can we pull out that you think are useful as someone that allocates to venture funds that might comport with how a public value investor thinks about the world?
1: Yeah, so it's it's interesting because I think portfolio construction is huge. And I think really sophisticated venture investors, as really sophisticated public market investors do, can differentiate themselves on portfolio construction. In venture, the way I articulate that is you know, I wrote a blog post a long time ago called All About the Benjamins, and it was I, I introduced this concept called RTFE, return the fund equivalent. Although I think when I first thought about it, it was the RTFF, return the freaking fund. <laughs> and you know the way venture is such a power law market that the top 10 deals in any year are all that matters You know of the 3,000 deals that were done. And so what you need to do is you need to make sure as you construct your portfolio that both in terms of your own sizing and the valuation, any one of those companies can return the whole fund. And it's an interesting exercise. It's almost like a Rorschach to go through with some of these investors. And this goes back to what I said earlier about portfolio concentration. You look at some people, in the, and you know they own so little of these companies that even if the company is a sixty billion dollar outcome, it returns a third of their fund. Wow, you need three of those then, and, and you can actually then look at the weighted average thump value, right? That you need, and it starts. You know, you start. Realizing that people are making implicit assumptions that are expressing themselves through portfolio construction. And that's really dangerous because strategy is not just what you do, it's what you don't do and what you ignore. And I think you know, you'd know you be far better versed to, to talk about it on the public side than, than I would. But even when I was doing public market stuff at, at Princeton or before business school where I worked briefly with a hedge fund, it was amazing to me how little thought the average manager gave to making sure that their portfolio was constructed in such a way as to give them an advantage.
0: Yeah, it's it's changing rapidly, I would say. Portfolio construction as a topic, people have, I think, realized how powerful a tool that is that even with the best insights, if you don't know how to piece a portfolio together. And the other interesting thing, and my guess is this doesn't happen a ton in the venture world, but in the public markets, more and more people think about, you know, covariances. And if they've got 100 portfolio companies, how many bets do they really have on? Do five of those companies sort of give you the same exposure? And in venture, especially if it's a focus on AI or something, like there's going to be a ton of covariance. Actually, maybe not, probably not much covariance because most of them will go out of business and one will succeed. But it's a really interesting thing that portfolio construction in the context of venture is so interesting.
1: Well and it's interesting too because then abstracting it up to the meta level of the allocator, we used to sit there. I used to be the, the model jockey at, at Princeton who put together the you know the, the mean variance analysis. And you know, you, you have your expected return and your volatility and your covariance matrix and you plug all these things in and I was like such a prankster. Like, I would always put, you know, this matrix would come out, and you would have, you know, kind of domestic equity, here's international equity, here's, you know, real assets, blah, 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 here's venture capital. And then as a gag, I'd put on the bottom rare coins, right? <laughs> really high volatility, very low return, you know, baseball cards. I'd plot all these lottery tickets. I'd plot all these like goofy asset classes that didn't exist, and I'd try to sneak them by you know, to see if I could get them in the final board book. But you know, they were, they a always A lot, lot of them. tickets never made it. Yeah, and lottery tickets never did make it. Probably not, a you know, that, that's one that gets, you know, kind of selected out in the process. But that said, I, I'd sit there and I'd be like, oh my god, how do we assign risk? You use standard deviation as a proxy Does for it risk. Doesn't makes sense. Makes no sense. What is it in venture capital or private equity that we think of as risk? We think of things like technology risk, market risk, team risk. In how many businesses do you have to worry about the VP of sales went to Ibiza and (laughs) didn't come back the same person? That could wreck a company. That's, That's risk. Don't give me the standard deviation BS. And so, so, how do you even begin to integrate this? And then, so from the Al here, I wrote this blog post a long time ago called Speak Like the Locals. And you sit down, and this is what people in venture don't get sometimes, oftentimes. You walk into to like a Monday meeting in an endowment, and you've got, you know, I called it Speak Like the Locals because I was like, and then you got the, you know, Germanic hedge fund person who speaks. Ah, the saltino ratio is high. You know, like it's very specific. It's very, you know, kind of quantifiable. You know, you've got the, the, the bond guys, you know. And then you get to the venture guy, and it's like, it's like Italian, like, hey, Sprat, <laughs> like, hey it's everything fantastic. Anyhow, so it's a different mentality because you sit there and you, people say, like, oh, why did you, hedge fund manager, hedge fund asset allocator, invest in this hedge fund? Oh, well, you know, their sortino ratio is this, and your trainer ratio is that, and you know, and all this stuff. Their Omega was whatever, right? And you know, it's first, all, first <laughs> Omega <laughs> reference on the podcast. I was going to say, there you go. <laughs> Will Getzman was trying to get that in, in our heads in 2001, whatever. And then you get to literally the, the venture guy and you're like, why do you invest in that one? Oh, the team. Like liked the guy. I like the team. The <laughs> team has a franchise. So this is what led me to the, how do we find people who are leveraging ecosystems? And that led me to these platform managers, which eventually then led me to universities. Like, how do you punch above your weight? And that's something that's tough to quantify, but important to
0: recognize. And I think that as a whole, the venture industry doesn't recognize that disconnect very well. A ton of people that listen to the podcast are allocators of some type, and that could be individual, they could be a financial advisor, they could be a professional allocator like you are. If you had to distill down some of the key things that you look for in managers, and ideally some of these would be transferable out of venture, but ones that are particular to venture are fine as well, that you and, I read in one of your quarterly letters that, I can't remember the guy's name, but a friend of yours who you viewed as a really effective evaluator of talent, of manager talent. What the dimensions of that are, things that you think are important to look for in allocators because so many people out there are hiring managers of some type.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I'll start with kind of my own manager selection process, which has four parts, and then I'll double click on each of these. So the first is the people. Do the people have some edge? And that's hard to quantify, but but we'll spend some time on that in a sec. The second is a strategy. Understanding I don't have a monopoly on wisdom of strategy. In fact, I'm almost diversifying my strategies. What's important with respect to strategy is, is there a resonance between the strategy and the people? It's amazing to me how often there's a a slippage between cup and lip there. Out of the people in the strategy falls the portfolio. The portfolio is is the proof of the pudding. And you can touch and taste and, and see the portfolio, visit with companies see what they're doing, understand how the team has helped that company grow and kinked upward, the trajectory of its its growth, et cetera. That's where I spend the bulk of my time. And then out of that falls performance. But again, performance is a lagging indicator, not a leading indicator, and very, quite frankly, size dependent, in my opinion. And so back to this law of financial levitation, as funds grow bigger, they almost can't
0: resist. I, know, call the, I call this assets versus alpha.
1: Right, exactly, right? Yeah. But back to the people, you know, so, so I think that's where it's most important. Important as an allocator to really understand the people that you're getting in bed with because the average venture fund lasts twice as long as the average American marriage. So you're really making a bet on people and you're probably betting on, you know, at least two funds if not more because you're not gonna turn over enough cards in the periodicity of the fundraising to really, as long as people are making good deals and staying on strategy, you're gonna probably invest in that second fund. So you're really getting on board for a 20-year ride and you need to make sure that the people are, not only excellent, distinctive in their space, have particular domain expertise, have a philosophy. It's amazing how many people are like, one of the questions I ask is, what's your strongest held opinion? Or what's the biggest hypothesis that you're testing? So people who are reflective, but also opinionated, but also have the humility to make sure that they're learning, right? That's critical stuff for me. But then understanding their behavioral footprint. So this is where I spend a lot of my time is understanding what they're afraid of, what they're excited about, what gets them eager to do something, what are the red flags that they seek, where are they off market. But then understanding people as people is something that is more necessary in venture and private equity than it probably is anywhere. I mean, you know, you want to understand alignment but across asset classes, but the illiquid nature of venture means that if you get in the mix of the wrong people, you're stuck. So really understanding them as human beings. and So I, I, I have meetings sometimes where people come out and they're like, wow, that felt like therapy. right? I want to understand what they're afraid of. I want to understand like the bad choices they've made. I've under- I want to understand their disappointments. In the last year, I've had a couple of people cry after I asked a question. <laughs> and and I, I've retired the question, but I'm not sure I, I should. What was the question? Well, the question is, tell me about the worst career thing that's happened to you. And I had a woman who talked about her early career at a big tech company in the late 90s and the harassment that she, you know. And I'm not, it's, it's not like question porn. The reality of it is I want to see how they learn from it. And this woman had an amazing answer about how hard she, you know, she had a mentor who, you know, basically kind of helped guide her through some of the, quite literally, harassment that she got, that was appalling to me and then she was able to then take lessons from that about how to vector her energies and how to how to interact with people and how to work you know kind of t- she was like and part of the challenge is I had to work twice as hard as the men and I did because I was driven and it was the lessons that she took out of that but in describing it, she got very emotional and it was like really kind of it threw me I asked sometimes people what their biggest disappointment was because a disappointment is a time when your hypotheses are you know kind of misproven and people always ask me, they're like, personal or professional? And I always say, every question's a Rorschach, and people have gotten very emotional talking about that. So that's a question I've retired a little bit, but maybe I'll, I'll say, what's your most biggest professional disappointment? But that's, you know, you get some really those interesting- Those can be emotional too, yeah. Those can be emotional too. I once talked to Jeremy Grantham about almost losing his business in the late nineties, but it was because he was, so, he had such great conviction. What an interesting, illuminating question that becomes. It then becomes almost a referendum on his conviction. And that's, that's really amazing. So, you know, I don't know if that's helpful or interesting, but that's just some of my own trade craft. So many people that start with performance because it's easy and it's quantifiable, right? How can, you not? Yeah, right? Yeah, how can yeah. you not? But the reality is I will tell you our best performing manager at Princeton, when I got there, our best performing manager, on the venture side, or one of our best, was a fund that had had a killer $75 million fund. Their $150 million fund crushed it. Their $300 million fund was okay. Their $600 million fund that they were raising we said no to. I don't know how that one worked out, but then they had a billion two and a 2.4 billion fund, and I later later read in I.I., which did a report about these guys, I.I. had their results, because of course, at that size, you're going to state plans and everything. People have to report. They just shat the bed. Excuse my French. And it's it's like, but boy, like if you were going, if you're looking at that $600 million fund and looking at the performance of 75 and the 150 fund, it's a total like, go for it. But you've really gotta un- unpack that. And
0: what would you say assets versus alpha? Yeah. It's a real thing. So who should and should not make any type of venture investment? There are a lot of types of investors out there. This is an interesting and sexy asset class. We know what that usually means for returns, and there's a lot of there's a lot of zeros. So usually, the, when I ask this question of people that are in this world, they say nobody should be an angel investor, right? Yeah, unless right. you're unless you're just like have some super special set of circumstances. So a different way of asking it is: Who of the of the broad general categories, from individual investors to ultra high net worth investors to whomever else you want to categorize, should and shouldn't invest in venture? Just in general,
1: so I'd say the biggest driver of venture success is a willingness to have a long horizon. I mean, it is the asset class where you have to take the most on faith for the longest amount of time. You're buying, actually, quite literally, the longest dated furthest out of the money options that you know you can buy in, in all of the firmament of assets, I believe, and so having that high tolerance for risk illiquidity and horizon is a really rare kind of trio i used to say that makes it a particularly interesting asset class for endowments this is the kind of swenson line but again with respect to don't try this at home you look at this you know the team at yale and the core of that team has been together since in some cases tim sullivan the private equity guy has been there since the mid-80s dean takahashi has been there since 82 one, or so you have this amazing kind of persistence and, and institutional memory, and then I look at there are other endowments who I there's this one school that we'd all be happy to and proud to send our kids to. It's gone through like seven generations of private equity guys, and every time there's a new sheriff in town, you know all the you know managers are anxious and and it, you know they, it starts to I think erode franchise. So the right endowments are important, and then high net worths who have an entrepreneurial outlook so you think more like principles and agents that's where you get some of the problems in institutional investments is if people think too much like agents and they want short-term results and you know that's a challenge And then, you know, it's interesting because my jury's still out on sovereign wealth funds because they should have a long horizon and high tolerance. They're pushing around big dollars. They're playing in a different stratum of the venture space. But what I would say is that that I've also seen sovereign wealth funds kind of in in 2001, 2002 retreated pretty aggressively. So I think some will be, you know, good long-term investors, but others won't. It's funny because you do have to look at Venture through its own prism or private assets through their own prism because you can't you almost can't integrate them in a portfolio wide model of it right because the stale prices are amazing they so one of the dirty you know secrets is venture and private equity almost have a pacifying effect on volatility in large institutions if for no other reason than for they're not marked at (laughs) all they're they're not marked right it's interesting because I think Lerner and and Gompers at Harvard. Took the S and P 500 and marked it daily, and then they would mark it, you know, so just a daily series. And then they took the Jan two mark, rolled it forward to the end of the quarter, and then rolled it forward, and they got like a point six five correlation of the S and P versus itself. Which, by the way, 0.65 is like what most people use for private equity correlation. I will say the other thing. So back to this question, the reason I bring this up is you really have to understand kind of holistically what your aims are and what role that venture plays and private equity play in in your portfolio and it was funny because one of my favorite stories and you know this is more of a, a story than apropos of nothing but in the early 2000s there's this great guy a good friend of mine a great mentor to me who is at the harvard endowment and there was a fund that they were in that harvard was in where they would raised a lot of money and they were in the in a position where they had a big management fee draw and one year, two thousand one or two thousand two, was a really quiet year. Ventures. So they didn't draw a lot for investments. So basically, you know, just created this huge J curve. And this guy had this portfolio that was benchmarked kind of against the Cambridge pooled mean for the the years in which they'd been investing. And so you've now got this big draw in management fee without kind of corresponding NAV growing. It's it's bringing his whole performance line down against the benchmark. And so he's sitting there. And he's like, literally, I was in the business like. 3 or 4 months and i'm sitting there at an advisory board meeting and the guys like you guys are killing me you guys drew all this money for, for for management fee and nothing for investments and you know what that's doing? That's dragging down my benchmark. <laughs> me against my benchmark. And Jack Maya, Jack pays me versus my benchmark. So you know what happens? If you guys are bringing me down then I'm not going to get paid. And you know what happens when I get don't get paid? My kids, I can't buy them a bicycle and what happens when I can't buy them a bicycle then they go complain to their mom and if they complain <laughs> to their mom that I can't buy them a bicycle then mo- their mom gets mad at me and I don't get any loving. So because of you guys I I'm not getting any loving, <laughs> so I don't know. You know, I don't know if this part of the story is true, but apparently that Monday there were two bicycles. You know, at, at the offices of Harvard Management <laughs> Co. I don't know if that part of it is true, though. But this speaks to the kind of long, long horizon. This, this is life in our business.
0: Life in our business. If you had to give your money, all your money, to some other allocator, who would it be to?
1: You know, it would be to the people who I think have the longest the highest pain tolerance and that articulates itself in in a bunch of different ways one of which is taking the longest term bets and having the most contrarian nature and so i think there are a bunch of people i've spent some time with david swenson the yale guys are amazing in that way andy golden at princeton has done a great job i learned a lot from andy working for him for three years and then David Salem is an amazing, I know you've had him on the, or I think you yeah, had he's been him. On, yeah. yeah, I've learned a ton from David and he, he really taught me about optimizing discomfort and oh, uh, isn't that a great phrase I've often thought about it. optimizing discomfort. And he told me when I joined Tiff, he kind of plucked me out of Princeton. And he said, I want you to invest courageously. I want you to invest without the fear of being wrong and alone, because if you're afraid of being wrong and alone, you'll never be right and alone. And I was like, wow, that's, he's like, I don't want career risk to enter your mind for one moment. And that really gave me the courage and the, you know, the kind of institutional backing to go and fund some of the first wave of great, you know, micro VCs like first round. And that's paid great dividends for TIFF and its investors. And, and I, I put that all on, on David. So maybe maybe it would be David. Awesome. Love it. He's a magnetic
0: guy. Oh my gosh, one of, the, one of the most interesting people to be around at a table with because you feel like such the focus of his attention. I think that's such a nice quality in people.
1: And I worked with David for seven years and it's really interesting how when you talk to him, you feel like he, there's nobody else in the world. It's and cool. it's, it's yeah. only, I've never spent any time with Bill Clinton, but I hear Bill Clinton is exactly the same way. And I just remember David and I were talking about baseball and we were talking about entropic homogeneity, which is actually a, a really interesting whole other topic. Stephen Jay Gould wrote an article a long time ago about the limits of human performance and how. Sure, yeah, I've heard of it. Yeah. yeah, it's really a great, great piece. And David was like looking, and I, could, I felt like there was nothing else in the world. And he kept saying, "Yes, Chris, yes." Oh, absolutely. Yes. Sometimes when my kids are, are talking to me, like, I'll be like, oh yeah. uh huh," And meanwhile, I have no idea what they're saying. I'm just like, they're just jibber jabbering about like whatever happened. I'm like, I've like channeled that Salem-esque clarity of focus. Although I, I've used it for, you know, kind of nefarious means.
0: <laughs> so I'll borrow from uh, your dichotomy earlier and ask my normal closing question a little bit differently. So personally or professionally, what is the kindest thing that anyone's ever done for you?
1: You know, so this is actually a really awesome thing and I, I can't I can't really like thank anybody. I grew up really poor. My dad was a cab driver, my mom worked in a hotel and I was in Brooklyn back before Brooklyn was cool. And actually there's a little story here. There's a guy named Jim Ventry who came, he was a young admissions officer at a school called Phillips Academy, Andover. And Jim's job was to go out and find students from inner cities to kind of pluck out. And if your scores were above a certain thing and your family income was kind of below a certain threshold, your application would be subsidized and you'd go to school for free. And Jim stood up there and like there was a near riot, food fight and spitball in the auditorium, like the all school auditorium while he put up these slides. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is the most amazing place like amazing pictures and, and i got home and i told my dad about it. And my dad said my son in america there is a system and this place sounds like your entree to the system <laughs> i want you to apply i will miss you but go and become part of america and i was like oh my gosh and so i applied and got in as a 14 year old and went up to andover as a freshman and went looking for jim ventry and he was gone and he'd gone to law school And I was like, I never got to say thank you to Jim Ventry. And by the way, the program's called the Rockwell Scholars Program. It was funded by Mr. Rockwell of Rockwell Aerospace. And so I never got to say thank you. And fast forward 25 years, and there was a, an event for admitted students at the Olympic club, and I get a call from the major gifts officer, they're like, look, we're not calling, you know, we know you live in a good zip code, but we're not calling for a gift just yet. But we patience. want you to, patience, <laughs> yeah, they're patient folks. They're like, look, you know, we wanna put you on the masthead of, of sponsors, and all we're asking is that you show up and talk about your experience for some of these admitted students. And so it's like me and Peter Curry, and like these people, I'm like, holy smokes, like I'm such an imposter here. And I show up, and the guy, Handing out name tags, I look at his, at his name tag, it says James Ventry, Assistant Director of Admissions. I'm like, what? I'm like, Jim Ventry, he goes, yeah. I'm like, were you here? He goes, yeah, you know, I had a 20 year career in the law, but decided that my true love was admissions. I go, oh, why is that? He goes, well, because I, I love the idea of changing people's lives. I love the idea of like really making an impact. I'm like, well, have I got a story for you? The last time I saw you was 25 years ago at a high school, a middle school in Brooklyn in the middle of a near riot, and you convinced me to apply, I never saw you when I went up for my interview, I I went looking for you when I arrived to say thank you, and I can now say thank you 25 years later, the last time you saw me I was a snot-nosed punk ass, and here I am co-sponsoring an event at the Olympic Club of San Francisco with Peter Curry and all these other luminaries. I feel like, as my dad would say, that I'm part of the system and I owe that to you and the academy. So that's my long-winded answer. I'm sorry for, for belaboring it, but it was. this is why I'm such a fan of need-blind admissions and, and very much the idea of America is the idea of social mobility. And I believe that creating this optionality, and you know, I do believe that even though things are kind of constantly evolving, I do believe that you know, hard, through hard work and education and pluck, you can really make a difference, which is why I like to support charities and with both money and time that help kids from disadvantaged backgrounds rise through education.
0: Man, what an amazing, incredible answer to that question! One, of, definitely one of the best. Highlights something that I've been thinking quite a bit about because of a prior guest who talked about in this study of happiness this idea of sacrifice mm-hmm. that a lot of the people who he found that were happiest, qualitatively speaking could very clearly point to sacrifice that they made on behalf of their relationships. Yep. It's, it's kind of indirectly related to your answer, but but it's the same idea of helping others in these interest, really interesting ways that you can't imagine the impact that something like that could have, even though it's not that hard. So just a phenomenal place to close. This has been a wonderful conversation. So thank you for your time.
1: Oh, thank you. This has been amazing. You're, you're a gentleman and a scholar.
0: Hey, everyone. Patrick here again.